Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. The reason that there's that hay up there is that the hay is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It goes Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hay. And uh, the reason the hay is there is because is because um, Rosh Hashanah, which is called Head of the Year, is five months back. You know, by the time you get all the way to Nisan, it's the fifth. Um, it's the fifth month in the secular year, but it's the first month in the religious calendar. So, um, before I get started. I want to read um, just a, a couple verses, and then and then we'll start with our Passover. Um, so I'm looking in Joshua chapter 21, and I was so excited about this when I saw this <coughs> because it says in it says in uh, Joshua 21 verse 43 to the end of the chapter. I mean, three more verses. It says. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it, and they dwelt therein. The Lord gave them rest round about according to all the land, according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them, because the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand, all their enemies. And there failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. It all came to pass. So we're not always in process. We're not always lacking things because God is is restoring all things to us and he's keeping every single promise to us. And so we don't have to be afraid because God knows about these promises better than we do, and he's determined to give these things to us. In, um, in Joshua 22, verse 5, it says, But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cleave to him, cleave on to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And this reminded me of um, what Lyra said when she said that uh, God wants us to, to give him everything. And then I thought about, I thought about God, you know, because in, um, because in 1 John it says that God is love. And in 1 Corinthians 13 it tells us what love is. So 1 Corinthians 13 identifies characteristics of God himself. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that love is not jealous. And yet we hear all the time that God is a jealous love. So how could God be jealous and not jealous at the same time? And I know the answer. (laughs) I know the reason. This is really important. Because one kind of jealousy... The first kind of jealousy, you know, that God is jealous is that he's jealous over us to give us us his very best. God doesn't want to give us anything less than his best. And so, um, so he wants to take possession of us so that he can pour out blessing. But the kind of jealousy that it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 is a, lo- is a jealousy that takes. You have, I want, I take, that's, that's that kind of jealousy. So God is jealous for us to pour out his gifts, but, is, but God is not jealous. I mean, when we succeed, he doesn't frown, he's happy. He delights in our success. So, oops, <laughs> 
I gotta, I gotta lay out some things here. One thing I wanna lay out for sure is this Israeli flag, which, um, okay. Okay, so um, me think where my sheet is. Okay, so what we've already talked about is the fact that there's two calendars. You know, Israel had a calendar that started with Rosh Hashanah. Um, I think it's the seventh month. You know, of like. It's the first month, but but when they were already five months into the um, into the secular calendar, then then comes Passover, and God says, "This will be your first month." And so they were saying, "Well, this is my first month, <laughs> but this is my seventh month." And so Israel has had two twelve-month calendars for thirty-six hundred years. I mean, both of them going at once. And, um, you know, uh, okay, so I want to see this slide, this first slide, if it's up. Is, uh, okay, good. Let me, uh, just a moment, I got to, just a second. Okay, so I want to talk about this slide. Um, as you can see, there's um, under the Bible holidays on the on the left side is uh, spring holidays, and the right side is fall holidays. And then, if you look at the bottom where the arrows are, um, it says it says the church. You know, it says um, you know the first ones. It says historically filled. Um, during Jesus' first coming, and then, and then the le and then also on the arrows, you know, on the uh, on the right side, it says to be fulfilled during the second coming of Jesus. So that's pretty interesting, you know, that um, these holidays of God that are all laid out in Le Leviticus 13, all in order. There's the Sabbath, and then there's um, these holidays. You know, there's Passover, there's unleavened bread. There's first fruits, there's Pentecost, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. I mean, every year, um, observant Jews are celebrating these in this order, and but they also lay out um, an eschatology of what God does with mankind. It's just another prophecy that God did, which is brilliant. So. The Passover, of course, is celebrating God's liberation of the Jewish slaves from Egypt. But for us, I mean, it has a different reason. Um, you know, in other words, the, the Passover is Jesus' death because he was the Passover lamb. He was the Paschal lamb, and he died on the day of Passover. And that was planned. I mean, he entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and um, and and he had a Passover feast, and then um, during that feast, to make sure that he was crucified during Passover, he um, he sent out Judas Iscariot, and he revealed where he would be, you know, to the authorities. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about the purging of sin. And um, and in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says it says burial. So this is when Jesus was was in the ground. I mean, he was gone for three days. Nobody saw him, and no one saw the the uh, disciples either because they were hiding themselves. But then comes first fruits, which Holly talked about. And you know what first fruits means? I mean. I mean, in the Hebrew holiday, first fruits is the first fruits of the beginning harvest of the year. But the first fruits in our biblical calendar, I mean, the, uh, 
You know, the prophetic calendar is when Jesus is resurrected. He's resurrected on Sunday. He became the first fruit of the church. There had never been the church in the earth. And Jesus was resurrected, and he was the first fruit. In, in a sense, he was like the tithe. And, um, and then everybody came after him, including us. So 50 days later, 40, you know, seven weeks, because the word, the Hebrew word shavuot means weeks. And seven weeks from first fruits is the 50th day. And on the 50th day in the Jewish calendar, that was the day that Moses went up Mount Sinai with the children of Israel. And God presented to him the law. And, um, and this was God's way of taking a people who were not after the heart of God and beginning to turn their heart toward God, you know, which is an act of love. I mean, the best love. Well, our first fruit, I mean, our Pentecost, you know, which occurs on the same day, God didn't give us the law. He gave us the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of Acts. So the birth is, I mean, so the church is born on first fruits, and the church is empowered with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then, according to the you know, that arrow on the bottom, it says the church. It's really the church age. So for 1,900 years, um, the church has been growing. God's been setting out the fivefold ministries. Been, it's been preparing people for works of service. You know, millions, many millions, maybe hopefully hundreds of millions have been saved through the years, and God has been building his church. But... Um, as you can see, eventually, or in time, and, and maybe soon, maybe even tomorrow, who knows, um, there's the fall holidays, and there's the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the Feast of Trumpets, um, for Jewish people, I mean, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, but Rosh Hashanah is also starts a 10-day period of awe when we look at our sins and we realize that we have not lived to our potential in God. And we repent from these sins. And, um, and then finally we come to the Day of Atonement where having repented, we, um, you know, we see that animals slaughtered and we see all the sins of Israel put upon the animal, both the sheep and on the scapegoat. But this, this book, this uh, holiday of trumpets, it's the trumpet of God. And what happens prophetically is that when God blows that trumpet, that we will be raptured. We will meet Jesus in the skies. Um, when we meet Jesus in the skies, then the restrainer is taken out of the way that it talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And we restrain evil on the earth because we are the church. We are the salt and the light. The Holy Spirit is in us. And we have spiritual power because we have those weapons of our warfare. And we can pray and enforce God's victory on this earth through our words because there's life and death in the power of the tongue. This day of atonement. This time of atonement, the seven years, is when Israel finally comes into her own. Because, in, um, because as the Jews are weeping, you know, on the day of atonement, because their sins are being forgiven, in, um, in Zechariah uh, 12, 13, it says that they'll look at him, you know, who is, uh, you know, like who died in their place. I mean, and they'll weep for him as they mourn for an only child. I want to tell you that during this day of atonement, God does a mighty miracle because the Antichrist is trying to destroy all of humanity and he's trying to destroy the Jews. And then God has this great salvation. And when they look at him, they'll, they'll recognize Jesus. They'll recognize Jesus and then in Romans 12, or Romans 11, it tells us that all Israel will be saved. 
So then the next, so they will be saved and suddenly there won't be Jew or Gentile. I mean, in, in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, but um, I want to tell you that um, after the salvation of the Jews, and the, then Jesus is coming back with his bride and, um, and there will be Jewish believers and there will be, you know, which are called the elect and then there will be so many others because they'll be sending out the 144,000 and the two prophets and they'll be going into all the world and they'll be making converts. People will understand and that's what the Olivet Discourse is all about, you know, because it talks about a great um, revival during those days. The Feast of Tabernacles is when the Jews were in the desert, in the Sinai Desert, and they were, um, they had only temporary dwellings. You know, they didn't get the permanent dwellings until they entered the land of Israel when they could build houses. But in the desert, they had these, um, these tents and they would move from place to place as the Holy Spirit would move. You know, the, the fire by night and the cloud by day. And that's what tabernacles is to the observant Jew, but to the Christian, it's the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and um, we'll all be with him. It'll be a joyous time. So I wanna, um, okay, so I'm gonna go on here. So um, in Leviticus 22, 18 and 19, it says, speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, say to them, anyone of the house of Israel or of the stranger, strangers in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any of their vows or any of their voluntary offerings, which they present to the Lord is a burnt offering. Okay, a burnt offering is different from a sin offering. The sin offering is something we do or they did, you know, when they sinned and then they had to make atonement for that, you know, with this. But the burnt offering is an offering of praise unto God, you know. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But it says that for, for that burnt offering to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. And um, God would not accept a sacrifice that had defects. For instance, in the book of Malachi, uh, they were um, rebuked for offering blind and lame, and, and, and Malachi said, would you offer that to your governor? Well, God doesn't accept anything but our best, and that's why we have to give him our whole heart, because we don't want to give God a lame offering we, want, we don't want to give every, God everything except for our eyes or except for, you know, then we give God a perfect offering, which is our whole lives. And as I said, um, God is jealous for that, but, but only so that he can pour out on us his blessing. So the lamb was inspected for four days. And uh, because they wanted to make sure that there were no defects. And this is what I read. I read that Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, but that he was really, it was four days before he was crucified. And, um, and he was found to be without defect. It says in the original Passover, the Jewish people protected themselves from the 10th plague. What did they do? They used a branch of hyssop to paint the lamb's blood, the perfect lamb's blood, on their own doorpost of their house. And then when the spirit of death saw that blood, instead of coming in and killing their firstborn, you know, it, it turned away, it shrieked away. You know, it's like, um, I just want to say that Jesus is our door. We've entered the narrow path, the small gate in the narrow path, and we have a shepherd who is our keeper and he doesn't lose any one of his sheep. He keeps us safe. And the, the punishment of, of, um, of death in Hades, you know, um, is kept from us because of that door of blood. This, this 
Blood that's painted on the door is also painted on the door of our hearts. And we're protected safe. And the, the hyssop that's used to paint the, the lamb's blood in ancient days, I mean, Derek Prince said that hyssop represented the Holy Spirit. Because we can't understand the things of God, nor can we be saved, you know. I mean, we make a choice, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes this ch choice clear to us, you know, who prepares us. And, and um, through the help of the Holy Spirit, this blood of the lamb is painted on our hearts. In Exodus 12, 5 and 6, it says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished lamb, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and then you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. This is, of course, the 14th of Nisan. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it. The first thing I want to say, it says a year old. And I was thinking about Jesus. You know, Jesus, um, you know, Jesus uh, did not enter the priesthood of Israel until he was 30 years old. I mean, that was a law. But I also want to say that when it talks about unblemished, that means without sin, and Jesus was the perfect lamb. And when it talks about the whole assembly of, of the congregation of Israel, it wasn't enough for one, for one priest to do this. You know, everybody did it all in their homes, and they all painted the blood, and they were all protected. Um, this is important to me. It says, in the, in the New Covenant, we understand that Jesus was the perfect lamb. And my question to you is, who killed Jesus? And this is really important because the Jewish people for centuries, for 2,000 years, have been blamed for deicide, you know, the killers of God. <laughs> and when they were called the killers of God, you know, then there were always people in every generation, you know, in these churches. And they would say, well, because they killed God, then we're going to kill them. We're going to take revenge upon them. But the Jews were not the only killers of Jesus. Because the Father in, in John 17 sent Jesus, you know, not to judge us, but to redeem us. He sent him. And then when Jesus came to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, he basically said, do I have to do this? And the Father said, yes, you do have to do this. I mean, this, is, uh, this was all designed before the creation of the world. So God had a role. The father had a role in the killing of Jesus because he sent him and affirmed that he must die on the cross. And then Jesus said, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. That means there was a reason why Jesus knew that he had to die in Passover. He slipped into Jerusalem and, uh, and then he, remember, he sent Judas Iscariot. He, he, um, and it says in 1 John 3.16 that he laid down his life for us. So it wasn't that somebody else snatched it from him. Jesus laid down his life for us. For the Jews, they said, crucify him, crucify him. You know, they certainly intended and hoped that he would die. But they couldn't force him to die, you know. I mean, Pontius Pilate had to agree. And then how about us? How about us? All of us were born sinners. All of us were born with a sin nature. All of us were destined for destruction. And it was the sin, our sins, that made necessary Jesus' salvation that his blood would be spilled upon us. And so, um, so each of us is, is also partially responsible for his death. I mean, anyway, um, somebody said, you know, I heard somebody say, well, the Jewish people, you know, in, in the gospel it said, um, 
They were telling Pontius Pilate, his blood be upon us and our children. Well, that's pretty inflammatory. But then again, as Christians, we say, uh, may his blood be upon us, <laughs> that we're covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. You know, that if, um, if we weren't co covered by his blood, then we would still be in our sins. So I want to get, okay, so um, why Passover? Why this holiday of Passover? Well, for one reason, God commanded through Moses that Passover be celebrated as a lasting ordinance and that it be taught to the next generation. Thank you. <laughs> be taught to the next generation. Okay, so how do you teach Passover? Well, you go in the Bible and... Um, and up on the screens is the Seder plate. So there is, are certain foods um, that are used to tell a story. And the reason it's called Seder plate is because Seder is the Hebrew word for order. You know, in other words, we're being methodical. And so a popular expression in Israel is mashlomcha, and then the answer is seder. And mashlam cha means how is your peace? I mean, instead of how are you, it's how is your peace? And then the word seder, in order. My peace is in order. In other words, there's nothing that's disturbing me. Here, just a moment. Getting there somehow. Boy, just a moment. Okay. Okay, so when we look at the Seder plate, at the top we see the word horseradish, you know, and we're going clockwise. And the horseradish is, um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this again, but. It, it represents, I mean, if you've ever eaten horseradish, then you're lunging for the water or the milk because it's really hot. And, uh, and it represents the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And as we go down, the next word, zeruah, means shank bone. This represents the lamb of the God. I mean, the, the lamb, you know, that was slain, you know, on the night of the Passover. And then comes heroset. And this is made of um, crushed walnuts and um, oy, oy, oy. a word is missing from my brain here. But anyway, um, uh, walnuts, and <laughs> I can't think of the second one, but there's also honey and there's, um, and there's cinnamon in there. Oh, oh, and apples. So walnuts and apples and cinnamon and honey. And, and it represents the mortar and the bricks, you know, as they were building these buildings in Egypt. And then Hrotza, I mean, the one at the bottom, it's just a bitter herb. I mean, it's, yeah. The next one, you know, the, these greens, these parsley greens, um, this represents life, but it's also used in the meal in conjunction with salt water. And then the baits of the egg represents the temple that has been destroyed. So the next one here, the next slide, is the same Seder plate, but it's been filled you know, with, um, with all the different foods. And after that, comes the Haggadah, the book. And Haggadah means the telling. You know, so in other words, we have the items that we need, and we also have the, um, the story that goes along with those items. So, in, so this book, book, the Haggadah, you know, the, the telling of Passover, you know, it's, it's being taught to the children, and, 
And it describes the way, you know, it describes each of these foods and it describes the order of the Passover. So the next one here, I believe. Anyway, um, there's the... Um, Here's the four cups, because in Passover there are four cups. As part of the Haggadah, there's the cup of sanctification, the cup of um, plagues, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. And we'll describe each of these. Essential to the telling of the story are, are the four cups and the bitter herbs and the matzah. And, um, you know, with these, with these elements alone, you can tell the story of Passover. And then the last thing before we start getting into the service is the pillow. The pillow is very important. So we, we take a pillow. Everyone has a pillow. They're not sitting up straight. They're leaning back or they're on the floor or they're lying down or whatever it is. And they're on this pillow. And they're leaning on their left side. And if you can imagine the disciples and Jesus being prone, you know, and leaning on their left side, then you could easily imagine John resting his head on the chest of God, listening to his heartbeat. So I'm going to put on my talit. putting on my tallit and I'm putting on my yarmulke. Now the yarmulke, you know, you've always seen Jews have yarmulkes. And yarmulke, what it means is covering. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I'm covered by God. You know, um, I was thinking about Genesis uh, verse 2, I think. I mean, like Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 when the Holy Spirit was hovering over the world. You know, it was unformed, but he was hovering over. And I was also thinking that um, about Jesus, that he covers us with his wing. It talks about that in Psalm 91. And, um, and God is protecting us in this world. He's protecting the godly and, and the ungodly alike. But he protects us in this world. This covering is, is a symbol of that. And the reason why last time for Purim, I was wearing, a, you know, a colorful shirt, you know, and this time I'm wearing this um, talit and the yarmulke is because this is a holy holiday. <laughs> How holy is it? Well, Jesus was the Passover lamb, so it's a holy holiday. <laughs> so the first thing that happens in Passover is the search for chumets. And so I don't have the props here, but I have in the past. You have a candle, you have a wooden spoon, you have a feather, you have a piece of white cloth, and um, all of the chumets has been cleaned from the house. In other words, all the bread's gone, all the cakes are gone, all the cereal is gone, anything that was made with leavening. It's all been sold or it's been burned, but it's no longer in the possession of the house. And the chumets is representing sin. And um, so, sin, so chumets has gotten ri rid of before Passover, but I want to tell you that that when we have communion, we're supposed to look at our own hearts and we're supposed to repent, you know, from the sin in our lives. It's a perfect parallel. So after the search for chametz, then 
the mother of the house, you know, she lights the candles, she says, Baruch Atar. <laughs> and, then, um, and then there's the four cups of wine. And we've already shown the four cups, um, and there they are. And there's, um, there's a couple verses in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, and it says, and I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you out to me for a people. The way that this is understood um, in this holiday is when it says, I will bring you out, what God is really doing is bring us out of sin because Egypt represented sin and, um, and the Pharaoh represented Satan, you know, to, in this Passover. And when he says, I will take you out, it's I'm taking you out of sin. And what happens in the Passover is before the Passover, you have this cup of sanctification, you're washing your hands, you're getting rid of sin, almost like the priest, when he got rid of his son, sin before he would go and make sacrifices for the people. When it says, I will deliver you, God is deliver, promising to deliver them from Egypt, you know, to make them a free people. And when it says, I will redeem you, then he's cleansing their hearts. It's, it's the cup of redemption. And finally, when it says, and I will take you out to me for a people, then God has created a people of God that's his, that's his, you know, and that's, um, it's really when Israel is redeemed. And when is Israel redeemed? It's when they finally get the law after 49 more days. You know, that when they receive the law, then there's a covenant made between God and the people of Israel. And, uh, and he has taken them at that point to be his people. In Exodus 6, verse 8, there's Elijah's cup. And there's a promise in Exodus 6, 8, and I will bring you to a promised land. Well, the question is, should they not have had a fifth cup instead of four cups? And so the Temetic authorities, you know, I mean, the rabbis, they discussed it and they decided, well, we're not really sure. But one thing we do know, and that's that Elijah is alive. He was taken up in that fiery chariot, or actually, actually that, that was after the Passover, but, but you know, as they were working on this holiday through the years, um, they decided that the, the question about the fifth um, promise would be settled by Elijah and that they didn't, you know, they didn't have enough wisdom to make that decision themselves. So, Here's a cup. This cup was used by my parents. My parents are both deceased, but... Um, so the first cup is the cup of sanctification, the washing of hands. Like I said, the, the um, you know, the exiting of, you know, anyway, that, that's it, you know, the, it's sanctification. And then the washing of hands. And then the next thing is the parsley that's dipped in the salt water. And then here's the four questions. So what we're gonna do is I'm going to sing these <laughs> in Hebrew. And then, and then, um, and then uh, we'll display them on the screen in English. It says, Shebechol halelot anuochlin Halayla kulo matza. Shebechol halaylot anu ochlin sha'ar yirakot. Halayla hazeh ma'or. Shebechol halaylot in anu matbilin afilu pa'am echad. Halayla hazeh. Shete pa'amim. Shebechol halelot anu ochlin. Ben yeshuvin uven mesubin. 
הלילה הזה כולנו מסובים. So, anyway, four questions. Um, since they're not up there, I guess I'll just read them. Um, what makes this night different from the other nights, all other nights? On all other nights, we're, we eat chumetz or matzah, and on this night, only matzah. On all other nights, we eat any kind of vegetables. On this night, bitter herbs. And on all other nights, we need not dip even once, but on this night, we do dip twice. And finally, on all other nights, we eat either upright or reclining. On this night, we all recline. And then there's answers to the four questions. Is Stephanie in the room? Oh, can you, um, can you go to the matzah? Okay. So what are the answers and what are the meanings of these? And so first we talk about the meaning of matzah. And uh, for the full duration of matzah, Jews are, refrain, are commanded to refrain from eating any leavened bread and may eat only matzah, unleavened bread. And it commemorates how the Jews were in a hurry to leave Egypt. They could not wait for the bread to, to rise, and they made matzah, and we do the same thing today. So that's the practical aspect. Matzah also has a symbolic significance. It's flat, it's deflated in appearance, especially next to uh, you know, you know, risen bread, and it represents humility and poverty and slavery, and it's called the bread of affliction. And this is all of this is a reminder. It's a retelling of the story so that the next generation will understand. But leaven represents sin, so matzah would have no sin, so it can't rise, and. When you look at the matzah, you know, you can see from right to left or left to right, you can see those brown marks, you can see streaks that go across the matzah. And if you look between all the streaks and everything, you see tiny holes, pierced holes. And this is very important because um, it represents Jesus because on the cross, he was striped with those, that whip so that we would have healing. And he was pierced in his hands and in his feet and on his side and he bled that we would have remission from sin. Well, the bitter herbs, as I've said, represents the difficulties of life as a slave in Egypt. The, um, the parsley is dipped in water twice the bitter herbs are dipped into the haroset. And, um, and the gist of it is that, um, is that slaves did not dip their food, but aristocrats did dip their food and were no longer slaves. Um, but God has um, made us kings and priests on this earth. You know, he made them, he gave them their own land and all that stuff. So. Um, so it's, it's, a, uh, it's a mark of freedom. So I want to show you matzah. Um, just a moment. I can see that it's it broke on the way here, but anyway, I did bring three slices of matzah. And um, so what we do um, with this, just a minute. Okay, before we, before we get to the matzah, we're going to talk about the next cup. We're going to talk about, oh, actually, okay. Okay, no, actually, what we do is we take the, the matzah, 
And um, we'll pretend that these are full pieces. Um, the first one, whoops. The first one represents the father. The um, The second one represents the Holy or Jesus. It's in the middle, and the third one represents the Holy or the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, Jewish people, why there's three? I don't know why they decided to make three, but um, but that's part of the part of the holiday. I mean, it's been part of the holiday for. Who knows how long? But we can see in this a story of Jesus because these are prophetic holidays. I mean, why would God not, um, not create these types so that we can understand better the prophetic significance, you know, of these, of these holidays? So what happens is that at this point in the service, we take the middle matzah, here, just a second, and we cut it in two, we, we um, tear it in half. We put one piece back, and the piece that's um, in half here, the other piece, it gets, it gets wrapped up in a piece of linen. This, um, this half matzah, which, which is from the middle one, is then hidden. And I think I'll put it over here. This is really important. This is, um, this is good stuff. Um, so we do that, and then, we, then there's a second cup, the cup of plagues. And the cup of plagues talks about the deliverance from Egypt and how did God deliver Egypt through the ten plagues and um, so what you do is you have your plate and then you um, this is filled with grape juice or, or wine and then you start um, talking about these plagues when it says blood then you take your finger you get a drip and you put it on your plate and then frogs a second, and lice the third one, and beast the fourth one. You finally get all the way to the end, the death of the firstborn. You've got these ten, um, you know, these ten drops. So the the question is, was God mean? Was he just mean because he, you know, put all these plagues on the Egyptians? And the answer is no, because... Um, God has to display his power and he has to display his glory and his holiness. And, um, and Egypt had many gods and each god was saying, hey, I'm God, I'm God, you know, nobody can dethrone me. And God had to prove God by God by God by God, all these small gods, you know, small G-O-D, that they could not stand up to the living God. He, God had to display his power so that there could be no doubt. So, um, so anyway, um, next we're going to come to Dainu. And um, here. Oh, right there. And you get to hear me sing. But before you hear me sing, you have to sing a little bit. So I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Dainu. Um, it goes, you've got to practice it just a little bit. Dainu means it would have been enough. It would have been sufficient because um, God has done so many things. And we're supposed to be a grateful people. We're supposed to be a thankful people. And so we remember, you know, the glories of God one by one by one by one. And so the way that it's, you know, is sung is, um, you know, Dainu, it would have been enough. Dai, Dai, Enu, 
Dai dai enu, dai dai enu, dai enu, dai enu. So I want everyone to say <laughs> dai dai enu, dai dai enu, dai dai enu, dai enu, dai enu. Now I'm going to read the first stanza, or sing the first stanza, and then you can finish. You can add dai enu to that. It goes, it goes, um, Ilu hotsi hotsi anu hotsi anu mi mitzrayim hotsi anu mi mitzrayim dai enu dai dai enu dai dai enu dai dai enu dai enu dai enu That means if God had only rescued us from Egypt dai enu would have been sufficient The second one Ilu notan notan lanu notan lanu et hatora notan lanu et hatora dai enu dai dai enu dai dai enu dai dai enu dai enu dai enu Ilu notan notan lanu notan lanu et Yeshua notan lanu et Yeshua dai enu dai dai enu Dai dai enu, dai dai enu, dai enu, dai enu. Now we're gonna look at um. Just we don't have to necessarily sing dai enus unless you would like to, but we're just gonna look at a few more. It says. It says um, if the Lord had merely rescued us, but had not judged the Egyptians. Dainu. <laughs> I like it. Okay. So if he may, if he rescued us, but not judge the Egyptians, if he'd only destroyed their gods, but had not parted the Red Sea, Dainu, it would have been enough. If he'd only drowned our enemies, but not fed us with manna, that would have been enough. Dainu. If he had only led us through the desert, but had not given us the Sabbath, Dainu. And if he had only given us the Torah, but not the land of Egypt, I mean, not the land of Israel, Dainu. You know, if we think about it, we could have a hundred different things or a thousand different things to have a Dainu about. Because um, God has been a very generous God to us. Okay, so, um, so, so at this point in Passover, everybody eats. They just have their meal, and at the end of the meal, then it comes time for the afikomen. And what they do is they don't know where the afikomen is. You know, there's, they don't know where it is. And then, um, and then the, the younger people, um, you know, they go searching for it. It could be under the cushion. It could be next to the bookshelf. It could be uh, in the pillowcase. It could be anywhere. But they find it and they bring it back and they say, uh, and then the you know the one officiating says, oh, okay, I need the afikoma. And they say, you can't have the afikoma unless you uh, unless you give me something. <laughs> And so then there's a little bit of bargaining and he ends up giving them some candy and they say, okay, dad, okay, I'll give you the afikoman. So let me grab it. So the dad now has the afikomen, and um, and then he picks up the third cup, the cup of redemption. And does this look familiar? The bread and the wine. This is our communion. This is what Jesus gave to us to remember him by.
And Jesus said, eat this, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so let's drink. This is called the dessert. It's eaten after the last thing is eaten, which is just about right now, because um, after this comes the fourth cup. It says, but when the disciples would have expected that fourth cup, which is the cup of praise, you know, Jesus surprised them. And he said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in, the, in my Father's kingdom. Well, I want to tell you that the day that will be taken up, the day that will be, um, you know, that will be rapture, the day that we will be spending our time in the presence of God in heaven is now a lot sooner than it was back then. And when we are up and up there with Jesus, you know, in the presence of the holy angels, you know, in the presence of, you know, um, and Jesus said, well, are you, I mean, here you are, no more sin, no more sorrow. I'm wiping away every teen, tear rather, and you're in the presence of God. You're seeing all the glory. Would this not be a good time to drink from the cup of praise? <laughs> It's, um, I mean, it's, it's um, awesome, awesome, a cup of praise. So um, what concludes the Passover are the words, Hashanah, Hapa'ah, be Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. It's been, it was the prayer of the Jews for, um, for all those years, 1900 years, you know, the, the uh, temple was destroyed in 70 AD. They got back the, um, they got back the Wailing Wall and they got back, you know, the area of the Temple Mount in 1967. It sounds like 1900 minus three, 1897 years. God was faithful. He restored everything. He restored that to them. There's other great prophecies about Jesus, Yeshua, because he fulfilled more than 300 prophecies, you know. One of those, of course, is Isaiah 53, where he tells us why he went to the cross. And, and by the way, um, some people say, oh, he was crucified on a cross. And some people say, oh, no, he had to be crucified on a tree. And I want to tell you that in Hebrew, the word etz means either tree or wood. <laughs> so it's not really an issue. Sure would. Um, another great psalm is Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to know what Jesus was thinking as he stood on that cross, um, it tells you in Psalm 22. It has, you know, it, it tells you um, the thoughts of Jesus on the cross. I mean, that's awesome. And then another um, verse I wanted to share because it's so meaningful is Jonah 2.8. Of course, Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah, you know, three days in, in the deep or in the whale or whatever. And, um, but in Jonah 2.8, it says that those who cling to worthless idols leave behind the gracious love that could have been theirs. So again, this really gets into that whole idea of, of um, jealousy. The more we give to God, the more he's able to give to us. And we don't want to cling to the worthless idols. Instead, we want to receive that gracious love. Now, this is the last, um, the last part of this. You know, in the gospel accounts, it said they sang some hymns, and then they, um, and then they were heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. But these hymns, um, all going all the way back to temple times, are the reciting of certain psalms. 
So Psalm 113 is uh, recited um, before, the, before the Passover meal starts, and then Psalms 114 through 118 plus 136 are recited after the meal. So these, these verses in these Psalms are the very ones that Jesus and his disciples were reflecting upon before the, um, you know, the, you know, before, before that dreadful night and the time, you know, that Jesus was arrested. And so I just want to read some of these because they're the same words that, um, that Jesus, you know, that they were reflecting on. And so we can, on the cross, we can get some idea of what Jesus was thinking but after this Passover, we can get some idea of the, um, of the scriptures that were encouraging their hearts. And so I'm going to start reading, um, not too many, but um, it says in Psalm 113, it, it says, um, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap. And I want to tell you, I had my own garbage heap, you know, before I was saved. It says, to seat them with noblemen, with the noblemen of his people. He has the infertile woman live in the house as a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. In Psalm 115, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And he is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us, and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. The small together with the great. So this includes us, of course. In Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my pleas, because he has inclined his ear to me, Therefore, I call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. And you can imagine Jesus. The snares of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord watches over the simple. And I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O oh my soul. You know, to your, um, um, anyway, beseder. <laughs> you know, to your rest, O oh my soul. For the Lord has dealt generously with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Amen. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. Let those who fear the Lord say, his mercy is everlasting. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and put me in an open space. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. And I think that's worth saying again. The Lord is for me and I will not fear. What can, God, what can man do to me? It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust a nobleman or a king or a president. The Lord is my strength and he's my song and he has become my salvation. Now listen to this one. This is a familiar verse. This is uh, verse 17 in, in Psalm 118. I will not die but live and tell the works of the Lord. You know, if we're sick 
and we go up for prayer and there's a confession that comes out of our mouth that says, I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. We know that there's life and death in the power of the tongue and that we're gonna choose life and blessing and here we're saying, I will not die but I will live and, I, and to tell the works of the Lord. And Jesus was facing death but he said, he heard, I will not die, but live. Of course, he died, but he lived so that he could tell the works of the Lord. And uh, just a, a couple more here. I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. A stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. There was a reason why Jesus went to the cross other than to free us from sin and that's because he's building a spiritual house and he has become the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. And I want to say the ironic blessing. This is my last, it's a closing blessing. Yivrechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'ara Adonai panav alecha v'hunecha Yisa Adonai panav alecha v'yasim lecha shalom the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. From the Sarah Shalom, from the Prince of Peace, amen. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what He wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey. Because God is good, and He has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you. We love you. Have a blessed day.